I'm sitting on my living room floor in Portland, Oregon. I hate this rug. I hate this apartment. My boyfriend is sitting on the beige, beer-stained, weed-reeking couch. I don't know which one I hate more. Every day was the same cycle. I would wake up in the darkness of 4 a.m., wipe crust off my eyes, and put on leggings, sneakers, and a t-shirt. I would try to wash my face without turning on the lights. I didn't need to wear makeup. No one of importance would be seeing my face. Then I would secure my raincoat and helmet and begin to bike south. I would slip in a podcast episode to help me wake up. Stuff mom never told you, snap judgment, hardcore history, anything to help me forget I was awake. The bright moon would make its last round across the navy blue sky. It hung over the city and the bridges that connect it. Another night is almost over. I would make it to the bakery by 5 a.m. Often the head baker was already there, neurotically counting cans of pumpkin. Although she was tinier than me, she had the attitude of a power lifter. One wrong move and she would just gruffly shove me out of the way and show me how to slice a goddamn pear. Remember to pour the batter in the center of the crust. She dealt out few smiles and rarely made eye contact. It's taking you a long time to slice all of these strawberries. She stressed me out. You put cornstarch in a slushie, not directly on the berries. Every morning, I would walk into a freezer colder than the ice age. I would count out how many key lime pies were left, and they make anywhere from 6 to 12 more before 7 a.m. Every day felt like working in a factory. Systematized, organized, efficient pie baking. Not a moment to lose or crumb to forget. Those baking bloggers with their cute little aprons and delicate cake holders and playfully licking frosting off their faces were now a farce for all I was concerned. I would wear burns on my arms like badges of honor and would find pie filling crusted in my hair. As the day ticked on, I would slowly watch the sun rise and warm the city. I would sometimes try to slip an earbud in to finish a podcast episode, hoping the Miss Trunchbull of Pies wouldn't see me. What am I doing? Why am I in Oregon? The Portlandia propaganda I had swallowed in New England tasted sweeter than actually living here. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have family. All I had was this boyfriend who really made me feel good about myself. What the fuck is going on? For the past five years, I had been in the culinary industry. I had done catering jobs, staged as a chocolatier, and written a feminist cookbook as a senior thesis. I thought this was the area I wanted to be in. But this job was draining the passion out of me like pouring water from a pot of boiled quinces. After a few months, I started to get a little itchy. Doubt had rotted my career like a bad apple. One day after work, filled with passive-aggressive comments and little cheer, I started biking home. It was pouring out. Another sunless afternoon. I hated biking in the rain. I hated being in a place that is so wet. I started crying as I pedaled up the slow slopes of Portland. Once I got home, I threw down my bike and ran indoors. I fell onto the carpet and just started sobbing. My boyfriend was sitting on the couch on his computer. 
He came over to me, wrapped his arms around my wet, shaking body, and asked me what's wrong. His typical pugnacious manner was softened by my tears. What the fuck am I doing with my life? This isn't what I want to be doing, but I thought it was, and I'm just so tired of not knowing where I am. For the first time, he didn't talk back to me or try to fix me. He just held me. Let's get out of here. I had a history of escaping. Backpacking through Europe after college, then moving to Portland. Often because I felt too confused about my direction. I thought that if I keep moving, I would eventually find the thing that gave me the life path that I didn't even know I wanted. I was so confused at the time. Later that evening, I clicked around on an international volunteer site I had used in Europe. It organized an exchange between hosts and travelers. For free room and board, travelers would have to work for six hours a day. It was the only way I could afford to travel for so long. And I loved sitting in the culture. The site had almost any place on the planet and type of work. When I backpacked through Europe, I was a cook on a meditation center in the south of France, worked on a bed and breakfast off the side of a mountain in Turkey, and harvested olives in central Italy. It was the best way to spend my time. I scrolled around, dreaming of all the different lives that I could live. And I noticed that there was a baking and chocolate making position in southern Peru. Later that night, we booked one-way tickets to Mexico City. I felt a sense of relief, like yes, another chance, another direction, a new adventure. Traveling always felt right. After I purchased our tickets and sat on that god-ugly rug, I kept clicking around on my iPad. And I looked at the garage band icon, one that I always thought was a waste of space. But I opened it and saw the timer and empty tracks fill my screen. And I thought, well, maybe I could make a podcast out of this. I really didn't like how poorly I had kept the wild and insightful conversations I had while I was traveling. What if I recorded them this time? Something about feeling adrift in my own life made me entertain this silly idea for a little longer than usual. Today on the episode, we're lost. Travelers will tell us stories about being disoriented in every sense of the word. We will lose important objects and get turned around, get lost in translation, or lose ourselves in an idea. As we try to find our way, we will see what being lost can actually do for us. Have your GPS out. We're going to need a good sense of direction. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. Travel invites things getting lost. The packing, repacking, shuffling around, living out of a suitcase life makes it easier to lose items along the way. And it is a frustration like no other. You pull apart your bags and mentally retrace your steps. Where did it go? I just had it. Your hand craves the smoothness of your cell phone or the edges of your credit card. But I think it's part of the deal when we travel. You have to sacrifice an item of importance to the travel gods for a safe journey. And travel blogger Crystal, creator of Castaway with Crystal, 
paid a large homage to satisfy the travel gods on her first trip. I'm a well-seasoned traveler now, but at the time, it was my first ever big trip alone. When Crystal was fresh out of university, she was looking for an adventure. As a young 22-year-old, she did the classic Aussie trek around the world. And you can't go to any hostel in the world without bumping into a horde of Australians who've been backpacking for no less than three years. To be fair, it takes them so long to get out of their country, they might as well make the most of it while they're gone. Crystal was ready for that adventure, and after four months of traveling through South and Central America, she found herself in a surfing town in Nicaragua with a couple of her other Aussie friends. Back then in 2009, you didn't really access the internet in your hostel or with your phone or anything like that. You just had to go to internet cafes. And to go to the internet cafe in this particular small town in Nicaragua, we had to bring our passport to like check in. I went there with only my passport and some money at that point. And I just sat my passport next to the computer in the internet cafe and then went about my business, um, probably adding some friends on Facebook or whatever, and then I got up and left the cafe. I think it took me about a day or two because you didn't actually need your passport to go out drinking or anything like that. I think I would have realised a lot sooner if I had have needed my passport to go to the bars. <laughs> I probably would have realised almost immediately, but I didn't. So it wasn't until the next time I thought I might need the internet. Lucky I hadn't left, but I thought, oh, let's go, you know, let's go to the internet cafe again. I need to get some more stuff done. And then I kind of... At the moment that I thought about finding my passport, I think I already knew that it was gone because I've, I actually kind of remembered leaving it there. So it was kind of like I, I had a look anyway just in case, but it was all like in vain, you know, that feeling where you're just like, oh, I know it's not here, I know it's gone. And it had been two days at this point, so <laughs> I didn't have much faith in in it still being there but nevertheless it was the internet was cafe was just around the corner so I just got up and went straight there and the passport wasn't there my my Spanish of note my Spanish at this point was pretty much none so I was getting my friend to translate any Spanish for me and she told me that the girl behind the desk didn't have it either but that somebody else did and we were like what does that mean? Like, how come somebody else has got my passport? Why couldn't they just leave it at the place that we would obviously come back to? So my heart is like racing. I didn't really know how I was going to contact these people. The The translation was a bit rough. So I decided to go on the internet just to see what, what had happened. Anyway, maybe there was some information there. And I was hoping for that and I logged onto my Facebook and there was nothing there, there was nothing in my emails, but I did have one friend request from a lady named Tracy. So I accepted the request and she'd already sent me a message saying, I have your passport, we didn't want to leave it in the internet cafe because the person at the time was acting kind of shady so we didn't really feel safe leaving it there. So we decided to take your passport with us. We're staying up on the hill at this other hotel really close by. We'll come, we'll bring it to you whenever you want. So 
the, the conversation was really slow, obviously, because we didn't have a te- te- telephones or anything. We just had the internet. But I just said, oh, we're staying here. Um, maybe you can bring it by at this time. Since these were pre-wireless days, the communication between Crystal and her passport holders were a bit slow. She trekked back and forth and back and forth to the internet cafe to check the messages that she'd been sending, hoping that the communication also doesn't get lost. So they came to my hotel and I just met them out the front at the time that they said they would come. They were very organized. They did exactly what they said they were going to do. And I met this kind of older lady named Tracy. She was maybe in her 50s at the time and her husband Wayne, two lovely Canadians who everybody knows are like basically the nicest people on earth and they just must have thought I was an absolute idiot. Like who just leaves their passport in a freaking internet cafe and then doesn't even contact them for two days after I've done it? Like they must have just been like these girls are an absolute liability Nevertheless, they, we had a great chat and they actually invited us to um, come and stay with them in Mexico. They had a, a condo, actually, in Mexico that they owned. So they said, when you get to Mexico, make sure you contact us and come stay with us. We'd love to catch up with you again and laugh about this stupid situation. And along the way, as we got a bit closer to Mexico, it started actually getting closer to Christmas as well. And Christmas is always really important to me. I like to do something really special for it if I can and at least be surrounded by people who are awesome and that I can have a good time with. So I contacted Tracy and Wayne and I said, hey, you know how you invited us to say, how do you feel about two surrogate daughters for Christmas? And they wrote back an email and they were like, yeah, sure. But also two of my children or our children are going to be there as well. So you'll be sleeping on the living room floor. But we obviously love to do the Christmas thing with you. And we were like, yes, done. All right, we're going to do Christmas. So that was 10 years ago. And I'm still friends with Tracy and Wayne today. And I've actually seen them three times since that happened. I've been back to Mexico three times and every time I go back to Mexico, I always go and stay with Tracy and Wayne in their condo, reminisce about the times when we were stupid young 22-year-old backpackers (laughs) and how we would most definitely not do anything that stupid again. P.S. We do stupid stuff like that all the time. (laughs) Crystal learned that with the right offering, the travel gods can be gracious. Made me kind of like realise that that complete strangers are absolute angels in disguise sometimes. Sometimes we get more in return when we go out looking for what we lost. Now, losing an item is annoying, but for the most part, we can always buy a new one, whatever it is. Cell phone, clothing, keys, even your passport. But being lost in a physical space brings its own challenges. You're navigating an area your brain doesn't recognize, Everything is new, which is exciting, but simultaneously distracting. It's hard to be mindful. Your brain is overloaded. And being lost does not exempt the well-traveled. Our bodies need time to adjust, no matter how many countries we've been to before. Jesse from Jesse on a Journey Travel Blog has built a business around traveling. She spent years of her life backpacking all over the world alone, 
but her map got turned upside down the first time she traveled with her boyfriend. So two years ago, my boyfriend and I were in Nice, France, and it was actually his first time traveling abroad, which is funny because I've been traveling well, my whole life, but traveling solo for 11 years at this point. So yeah, when we first started dating, he got into travel. So what isn't exciting about this? Their first international tryst is in the French Riviera. From the pastel pink castle to the turquoise blue waters, this artist city was a perfect romantic rendezvous. You have the waterfront, and then there's beach along the water. When you're driving down that highway along the waterfront, it's like very paradise-like. <laughs> and then you have the actual cities, and then they actually do have an old town, which is more the cobbled streets, uh, more narrow roads, and that is super charming. That was our favorite place to hang out. We, we also loved being by the water, um, so that was a lot of fun. But I, I personally loved the old town and just wandering without a plan. So it was our first day, his first day ever abroad, and we had a rental car. We didn't have SIM cards or anything. We parked the car. I took a photo of, I thought this was really smart, of just like a sign, but didn't really look at the sign. Didn't look at the street signs either. It was like a sign of a cafe. So we do whatever we want to do. We explore and then we decide we're tired. We want to go get the rental car and drive back to our hotel. Well, we could not for the life of us figure out where we came from. We're showing locals this sign. Nobody knows what we're talking about. We were trying to go into places to use the Wi-Fi. Nobody would let us just like buy a soda and use the Wi-Fi. And we tried to buy a SIM card. And for some reason, like, we just, we were talking to this guy. He was trying to sell it to us. And, like, it just, things were not working out. Like, we didn't end up buying the SIM card because, like, it wasn't working with our phone. Just, like, nothing was working for us. Um, we also learned, which, you know, we didn't know at this point how to interact with French people to get them to kind of open up to you. So, like, that same day, my poor boyfriend, his first time being abroad, we went to an ATM and the ATM machine ate his card. <laughs> and we went into the bank to try to talk to them to get it back. We stood in line for like 10 minutes without anyone acknowledging us. And then we said, you know, bonjour. And then they said, oh yeah, you know, come up. And they talked to us and we realized if you don't greet people, they won't talk to you. Maybe they think you're being rude, um, which is just so different than in the US because in a bank here, you wait online and you wait to be called. So that was like such a learning lesson. And then after that, we realized like, if you greet people when you go into a restaurant and ask to use the Wi-Fi, they're a little bit more receptive to you. He's like, my boyfriend was just like, is this what traveling is like? I'm like, sometimes, but not really. Like you are absolutely having the worst first day of a trip that like, that I've ever experienced. <laughs> like everything kept happening to him. Being lost in a new city can be maddening. You spin into a hurricane of confusion. How long have we been walking for? Did we go this way or that? Did we already pass by this bar? Or is my mind playing tricks on me? Even when you're trying to be mindful, it can still go awry, like leaving a trail of breadcrumbs, only to find they've been eaten by birds. Jessie and her boyfriend walked around in circles, squares, zigzags, and every shape possible for hours. But after hours and hours of like, oh, this looks familiar. Oh man, we've walked around this block like 30 times. Like we, I think we have to go right. And then he'd be like, I think we have to go left. And after trying just like, cause we knew the neighborhood it was in, 
but just not the exact place. So it was really just like trying every possible option. And then one woman tried to help us and she took us totally in the wrong direction. And like some people thought they knew the cafe, but they would, they did not. And they pointed us in the wrong direction. So we just got so turned around. And then finally, after honestly three hours of wandering around where we thought we needed to be, we finally found the car. Never again will I not take a photo of the cross streets. By the time we found the car, we were both really, really, really tired. Our feet were sore, like sweating. Um, We had planned on like doing this like awesome first night dinner with drinks and we just actually slept. And we didn't really do anything that first night because that really kind of put an awkward damper on the day. Especially for, for me, I was a little bit more like, oh, you know, you know, this is part of the adventure. Let's take a nap. And my boyfriend was a little more like, I hate this. And then by day two, he was like a better traveler than me. I think just it being that first impression, he was sort of like, wow, like that was so much work. And it was so silly. And he, we were, yeah. <laughs> I think if it would have happened, maybe at the end of the, like after a few days of being there, we would have been able to find it way quicker. But it was just like our first within our first like three hours of being in the city. Fortunately, they got the worst parts over in the beginning of their trip and had a great rest of their time and obviously strengthened their relationship because they are now engaged. But I asked Jessie what she would have done differently. Now, like I said, I always do get a SIM card and I also always now bring a hotel or hostel wherever I'm staying, even if it's an Airbnb, I'll write the address down just so I can put it in my wallet. And then if I ever am like totally lost, I can give it to a taxi driver and be like, take me here, especially if there's a language barrier. And now instead of taking a photo of a cafe sign, I would take a photo of street signs, like the cross streets. And I think people would have had a much easier time being like, okay, like this is where this street is. At least we would have known one of the streets to be on also. So we could have walked until we hit the cross street. We just took a photo. It was like, you know, of a fish with like or the word cafe or something. Like it was just super nondescript. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Although this wasn't the most pleasant afternoon, Jesse understands it's part of the deal when traveling. These little things that are different, like in the U.S., I don't have to say hello to a shopkeeper if I go into a shop or I don't have to greet the bank teller. They're going to say, okay, next And I'll go up to them and then say, okay, hey, uh, this is what I want to do. Whereas in France, it was very like, I'm supposed to walk in and greet these people. And it was, it's just these little things that are so different and you just expand your mind and change up what you're doing. That's the other thing. It's like, you don't have a routine when you're somewhere else. So you are sort of like, just everything is new and novel and a chance to have a growing experience or a learning experience or just create a memory. Being lost is disorienting, but it goes beyond the physical. Our intentions or words can often get lost in translation. This happens all the time when we're traveling to places where we don't know the language or look like the locals, just like how Jessie explained. That's how Rhonda Hansen felt the first time she traveled with her husband in France and Italy. I, I like traveling. I don't do it quite as much as I would love to. One of the strangest 
experiences I've had traveling was when I was traveling with, with my husband, now my ex. So in this recording, I'm sitting in a Le Pain de Côte de Dien with Rhonda Handsome. She's a well-acclaimed comic and storyteller and once opened for Aretha Franklin. As we sit in this cafe, with giant cups of cappuccinos and the smells of baguettes in the air, she tells me of the first time she went to Paris in the 80s. Rhonda was so excited to get out of the country. Their tickets were booked, bags packed. What a quintessential romantic getaway with her husband. But as the trip began, Rhonda started to feel a bit disconnected. France felt okay because her and her husband spoke some of the language, but that didn't get in the way of having some things get lost in translation. And then one night, when they went out to dinner... When we were in Paris, we went into a restaurant, and the waiter took it upon himself to tell me that I was sitting with the wrong person and that I should be at another table where Africans were sitting. It was a time when interracial couples were not welcome in a a lot of, of places. From her telling, it didn't seem like she stormed out of the restaurant, because unfortunately, this seemed to be commonplace. So... It is part of the duality that I experience on a daily basis being a black person and knowing that uh, at any moment, several times a day, I will be subject to someone interacting with me on the basis of, of my race, and it may not necessarily be a pleasant experience. But it was very exciting for me because I had always wanted to travel, but the communication was very challenging for me. But just because it's normal doesn't mean it isn't unpleasant. I can assume she felt like a spotlight was on her as she was trying to enjoy her meal. And I can imagine that some of that food might have gotten stuck in her throat. In the wake of this begrudging moment, Rhonda was determined to still enjoy the trip. They then cruised out of the city of love to the country of romance, Italy. However, Rhonda and her husband were not as familiar with the language, which made it harder to navigate. But she was still grateful to be there. Upon immediately arriving in Italy, I knew I was out of my depth as far as communicating. Some of the simplest things that I could not order or I could not ask for, in spite of the fact that I was in love with Florence. I mean, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. We did museums and palaces and bridges and all of these things. In Florence, they decided to do something truly special, a night out at the opera. My husband, my high school sweetheart, actually had introduced me to opera, which I'm still quite fond of. And so in our travels, we would frequent opera houses, and we went to the uh, opera house in Florence to see La Cerentella, the Cinderella story. And I thought, oh, well, this will be fun. I know I'll be able to follow it, and the music should be just great. 
When they got to the theater, it was everything that Rhonda dreamed of. I was just very excited to be there. It was beautiful. The, the, the scenery was gorgeous. The costumes were beautiful. And, uh, yeah, we had, and it was at a time when people dressed up for opera in the theater. And, and I was very excited because I had on my finery as well. It was, it was fabulous. The curtains open, and Rhonda is able to be completely in the moment. As an actress and performer herself, this whole experience was delightful. Until... And uh, I was enjoying the opera immensely until at one point a huge chorus, probably in the party scene, but a huge chorus appeared in blackface. And I was absolutely thrown. I was the only black person in the entire opera house, and I was looking at a stage full of people singing and dancing in blackface. Nothing had prepared me for it, and I, I was feeling like I was having some kind of surreal experience afterwards and I, I sat there and, and just tried to process what I was feeling and what was on the stage and, right. and not freak out. <laughs> Rhonda was shocked. I imagine she felt a heat on her body as if the lighting crew had turned the spotlight off the stage and directed it onto her. But what was most unsettling is that no one else seemed to flinch. Everyone thought it was normal. The director probably didn't expect someone like Rhonda to be sitting in the audience or gave any thought to what it would be like to have a black person watch this scene. It didn't translate. I, I know, I think I was very, very much wrapped up in, in the, the internal, uh, my internal landscape. And also then even a little concerned for my well-being because it, I know, it, at least in America and, and, and in other countries, people can be subject not just to verbal abuse but to violence. So I'm not really sure what people were thinking when they looked at me. But when I left, I really felt sort of like I was having an out-of-body experience. The experience would be mortifying for anyone. But for Rhonda, there was added weight to this. As an actress and director, she knew the unruly history of black performers a little too well. It was a, a humiliating experience, uh, especially when you realize the history of it that sometimes not only were white people using blackface, but sometimes black people had to blacken their faces if they wanted to work. So the whole, the whole aura and experience of blackface is, is fraught with humiliation and with diminishing the humanity of, of black people. 
I had been an actress for some time, so I did have some artistic sensibilities, but at that moment I was confounded, I was dumbfounded, and I, I felt insulted and traumatized. Rhonda's romantic rendezvous in Europe was starting to be characterized by these awful racist experiences. It started to feel like a cloud would be looming over the entire trip. And it left a bad feeling for me for so much of the time that I was in Florence. And it really did not abate until one point we went into a small mom-and-pop shop to uh, just buy sandwiches. And I was pointing and having a little difficulty. And the woman looked at me and she told me the words that I was pointing to and she asked me to say them and and she helped me through my order with a kind of care and attention that I was so appreciative of that because after the incident at the opera and then being in a situation where I felt like I really couldn't communicate with the locals like I would like to, this changed that feeling for me. It, it made me feel like I'm, I'm, that I'm talking to a local person, a real, a real person. Rhonda received the kindness from strangers that keeps so many travelers going, that although language might separate us, our humanity keeps us together. She treated me with a sense of my humanity, which made me enjoy my sandwich so much more. I think part of being human is not always knowing our place in the world. We didn't choose the body that we're born into, the location, or even being alive at all. We might be the only form of intelligent life or be floating on a speck of dust that has rested on a clover. Who knows? Some of us don't even entertain these ideas, while others can get lost in this existential void. And these thoughts can send us into a panic. We stress. We don't think clearly. We do things we can't always turn around from. All we can focus on is how bad it is now and we'll do anything to make that fear go away. This is how Jeff Zimmerman felt in the early 2000s. He is now a well-acclaimed New York City comic and storyteller, but back then he was working at a shitty startup in a failing punk band with nothing much else to do. If boredom is the devil's playground, then existential dread is his theme park. In 2003, I had this job working for this graphics company in Richmond, Virginia, and it was a terrible job. My boss hung a Confederate flag off the front porch of the office, uh, which was in this, like, abandoned shoe store, and me and Steph, my colleague, would just sit in the basement and just screw around every chance we got. Just, like, the Internet was brand new. It was slow, but like we were, we felt like we'd hit the mother load because we shared a DSL connection. Everybody had dial up at home. And we found this website called hotornot.com, which was kind of like Tinder 101. You would just upload photos of yourself and the community would rate you from one to 10. 
And and I mean, it was just a dumb game, you know. And like, and so Steph and I would just do that. She's she's gay, and I'm me. So we would both look at chicks all day on Hot or Not. And and this is and this is how I like people hadn't really learned that if you only see face and cleavage, then you, you, you're hiding something. You know what I mean? Or like all of the tells that you as a person who are I don't know what our age difference is, but it's in web history significant. All that shit that you grew up knowing everybody else was learning at that time. And, but if you paid five bucks, you could meet a person and like talk to them if you connected with them. And I connected with this woman from Perth, Western Australia, which is like as far away from Richmond, Virginia as you can get without joining the space program. And I would just daydream about like some life on the other side of the planet in a cool desert, like beach setting I think we can agree that like a like it's it's so weird the polar like the spectrum of Australian accent because a like classy like Aussie lady accent is the hottest fucking thing in the world to me and then but that nasal like get I mate how you fucking going is the biggest like boner killer in the world and there it's within the same zip code but anyway so I I would just we would just sort of project daydream. But I connected with this lady, and we started emailing each other. And then the emails are getting progressively longer. Finally, I just was like, "Can I call you on the phone?" And we so we started speaking on the phone, and we talked on the phone for like ten minutes one night, and then twenty minutes the next, and then we're like talking on the phone for hours and IMing. So that's that. These things are just escalating and escalating. We're talking for hours and hours. I remember. Her, I was like, just like, tell me a story. Tell me about something cool. Like, just tell me about your life. And she said, well, the other night, you know, it was a late, and we were up way late. It was like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and we all went down to the ocean for a dip. She lived right by the Indian Ocean. And we went out in the water, and we're swimming around and bobbing, and a shape, just a dark shape, the size of a panel van, like a U-Haul truck, just went cruising past. And I was like, oh, my God, what did you do? And she goes, well, it's a good thing sharks don't attack the smell of shit. <laughs> I bought a plane ticket shortly afterwards. I was just like, I gotta meet you. I gotta meet you. I, you know, she's like, where is this going? And I was like, just give me a month and I'll have a plan. And during that month, I sold my record collection, my drum set, and I sold my van. Sold all that stuff. Made arrangements to quit my job. And then, and then a month and a half later... She, she was like, I don't know, this is just crazy. I'm just like, I'm going to meet you in the Sydney airport, and we're just going to see what happens? Like, no, I've got a job, I've got a life. You're just going to come over here and up, upend all of it? Just some traveler cruising out of the darkness? Like, I'm not, I'm not into it. I don't, know if I, I'm not, I don't know if I want to do all this. Which is like, you're making, you, you people can't, you can't hear Adrian's face right now, but she's making a very reasonable face, you know? But I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that I don't see your point, but at this point, I'm either meeting you in the Sydney airport or I am moving to the Sydney airport because I don't have a car or a job or a house anymore. So then it gets to like, we're, f- f- I'm on the, f- I've never left the United States except for to go to Canada with my parents when I was in elementary school. I'm on the flight, it's pitch black, and we're like just over the Pacific Ocean, LA to Sydney. It's a 23 and a half hour flight. 
And as soon as they like got up to cruising altitude, they like kind of had dimmed the lights, and they're like, "Doom! All right, we've reached cruising altitude, and um, we've turned off the fasten seatbelt signs, and we're going to begin beverage service shortly." And one of the a stewardess starts pushing a beverage cart out into the aisle, and the guy next to me like wakes up. There's an empty seat between us, and he goes, uh, "Excuse me, mate," and he like looks. And he just kind of bought you a blanket. And I said, yeah, you know. And he, like, commando crawls up the aisle, like, a, with the blanket in his teeth, just like, like this, up to the beverage cart and fashions a crude sack out of the blanket and starts <laughs> putting beers into it like a backwards Santa Claus and, like, loading it up with Victoria's Bitter, you know? And then he drags it back up to, to, and puts it between the like that. Got us a few beers, mate. I hate to steal, but they fucking, the first one wears off by the time they bring you the next. It's not on. So we're just drinking beers, you know? And That's a great first taste of Australian culture. Yeah, it started immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and... We're, 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 and he's like, hey, what's going on, you know? And I was like, what are, what are you doing? Where are you, where are you going? Where are you staying? And I said, well, I'm, uh, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? And I was like, well, I'm meeting this girl in the Sydney airport. Going, he goes, on the, from the internet? From the internet? And I said, yeah. And I was like, whoa. You got a, how long are you, hey, where are you staying? I don't know. When are you coming back? And I was like, well, I just brought a one-way ticket. He goes, What? And then I was just like, like, it was the first time I'd really said it out loud. I was like, yeah, round trip was like, it's real, like prohibitively expensive. So I just decided to just go. And I was like, I, I don't And he was like, oh my God, that is something else. All right. And then and like, he just cheers, mate. Crack a bit. Hope she shows up. And it had not occurred to me until we were over the Pacific Ocean that I could get ghosted on that level. So he drank himself right to sleep, and the flight to Australia from L.A. is long enough to get hammered, pass out, wake up, have a hangover, get rid of the hangover, have a panic attack, and then watch a couple movies. And that's what I did. And I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe what I'm doing. The thing is, like, this is such a crazy feeling, and I hope that everybody gets to have this a couple times, but you know how you can kind of predict your life, like, after this? I mean, you can't, but, like, I just mean, you kind of know, right, after this, you're going to turn this thing off, good night, good night hug, you're going to get on the subway, you're going to go to your apartment. Tomorrow you're going to get up and do whatever the fuck you do on a Saturday, and Monday you're going to probably go to work. And you like, kind of have that sense. I got none of that. Nothing. The future is a gray wall of just mist. Imagine, or I can hear the roller coaster of my life like ticking upwards, and there's just a cloud of mist right over the first hill. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't really have anything. Like when, when, as all you have to look forward to is customs. So I'm just like sitting there, and I just, I just remember like, have breathing very shallowly, just watching the the airplane like tick into the the country, and finally. You know, we landed, I went through customs, I come down the ramp, and it's just a madhouse in the, in the receiving area, and there's like a whole like Pakistani family reunion right in front of me, and I don't see her anywhere. 
And I was just like, oh no. And then I heard this like, hey! and like from way the other side of the room, I could see this like blonde mop of hair and glasses like leaping up and down, bobbing. And I, I was just like, it's her. And like I couldn't get to her and she couldn't get to me. And finally I just pulled up Andre the Giant from the Princess Bride and was just like, everybody move. And I'm a pretty big dude. And so I, I everybody did for the, and they made a path and we, we hugged and we like made out a little bit. And then we rented an apartment for the week. And then we get to the apartment and we're like, that's just, you know, finally, like years of, or what felt like years of build up, months of build up is paid off. And then we're just lying there. And she's like smoking in the apartment. She doesn't give a shit. I was like, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to smoke it. She goes, yeah, I don't think I am. <laughs> but I really need to. But as the months went by, Jeff still felt lost. The life he envisioned was not matching up with his reality. There were massive holes in the story of, I moved to Australia to be with you. And they started to tear even wider. Yeah, we're living together in Perth. And like we could see the sun setting over the Indian Ocean. And it's New Year's Eve. So it's a beautiful summer night. And we're having a bottle of wine on the balcony. Like the thing is, is like, it doesn't matter how honest somebody is with you about themselves via email or Gchat or AIM or whatever. They're not going to tell you things about themselves because they themselves don't know them. You know? And, like, you can't tell if somebody's rude to a waiter based on their emails. And then if you got there, like, if you went on, on a date with some dude, first date, and he was a dick to the bartender, nah, we're done. But if you had flown to a different hemisphere to go on that date, you might give it a chance, and you shouldn't. You know, we're sitting there on our patio and we are fighting and we should be breaking up during this fight. We are saying all the breakup things, but the sun is setting into the ocean. It's so beautiful. And we're like two, we've each had one bottle of wine and she's working on her second one. And it was like one of those fights that just starts like, I just, when you're cleaning the kitchen, could you please wring the sponge out? I hate the way it gets all mildewy. And 20 minutes later, it's like, Oh, I've been dissatisfied sexually. Like, all it all, like, how did that, fair enough, but what does that have to do with the sponge, you know? And it's just all coming out. And finally, we just heard this, like, we're just going, <sighs> like, just breathing for another round of fighting. And we just heard this little, like, clink of the of the mail slot. And um, she just goes on, hang on, and goes over to the, the door and picks up this envelope. And opens it up, rips it open, reads it. And it's like, oh, it's from my brother. Um, he came around and said he didn't want to interrupt us, but uh says, uh, brought you a gift. Uh, hope you have a good New Year's. Here you go. Have, you know, so-and-so. Love, Mark. And it's two tablets of ecstasy. So, uh, you know what? I don't want to fight. I just want to have a fun New Year's Eve. So I reckon let's just take these pills. And if you feel like fighting tomorrow, I'll meet you back out here. Like, I've never so completely had such an unhealthy escape hatch present itself. And I've never done ecstasy before either. But, I yeah, so I just was like, down the hatch. And then we went down the pub where my, my friend was bartending. And um, it's kicking in pretty good. You know, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. And we're like, 
in the crowd and I'm like drinking tons of water and there's so many people there. It was packed. And the band, by the way, is a band. It's a it's a a eighties it's a Pat Benatar cover band. The lead singer is an overweight woman and they are called Fat Benatar. That's Australia for you too. And like they're singing Love is a Battlefield and I was like, it is. It really is. It sure is. Oh my God, this song is brilliant. I need some water. And so, and then I was just like, you know, hugging her slash sh- shoulder massage. I just can't believe it. I just never want to fight. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. All this stuff. And then I like got to go to the bathroom. So bad. She like grabs my hand and goes, yeah, okay, fine, do it. Yeah, you be comfortable. But um, I just wanted to tell you, I mean, you probably already know this, but uh, I've always secretly wanted to have a cock. And I was like, yeah. She's like, so I reckon the next best thing is when you get up to the front and it's your turn, I get to hold it. And I was like, yeah, of course, whatever would make you happy, for sure thing. Really? Yeah, of course. Because, right then, let's go. And she just like starts just going, one side, let's go out the way. Like shoving dudes left, right, and center. Just, just, just like a rugby player charging up to the front of the line. We get up to the front of the line, and like the, the urinals in Australia are like a big steel trough situation. You just shoulder up with your mates there, just trot it out and go after it. And, um, and so she's like, go on out you get, and like gestures, and I you know, pulled it out. And she reaches down and grabs, grabs the wang, and I just like, I started to, to pee, and the sense of relief, it felt like I was giving birth to myself. I can't explain how relieving and like life affirming it was it's like the piss is is forming uh, uh like an infinite symbol i'm just like oh god this is amazing and she is just like holding it and like pointing around with it and like drawing in the air she's like this is fucking superior pissing technology is what this is oh my god this is a real development no wonder you're decorating every rock and tree out in the bush every time we go camping Fucking hell. And I'm still peeing. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, like, and then the guy next to me is like snickering. And then this voice from the back is just like, I, you know, he's, he's just like, you can't fucking have a chick in the men's room. <laughs> fucking, I've been waiting half an hour. It's got to use it. You can't just barge your way up the front. That's fucked. Okay, that's not on. And um, she is still holding my pissing dick and turns around. And it's like, you're just mad because you've got a small cock. She's like, my boyfriend's doing fine. And this bug here points at another man's pissing dick with my pissing dick. He's fucking set up. You don't hear them crying about it now, do you? No. And, <laughs> and I was just like, oh, great. And it's quiet for a second. And then everybody's goes, ah! They just start going nuts. They, they loved it. And they, we, our bar tab got paid. And we went outside afterwards and... We're on the sand dunes overlooking the Indian Ocean. At this point, the moon is rising over the ocean, and like the white, blue, bluish white light of the moon that's hitting the little wavies. And dolphins are like jumping up out of the air and probably like kissing and then diving back in. Like, if, if you were to see this airbrushed on the side of a van, you would be like, that's too much. Reel it in. What is this? This is the most overdone trapper keeper I have ever seen. And then, and we're just holding each other, and I was just like, babe, I just, I'm not ready to break up yet. I don't want to. 
Like, you're just so wild and funny and cool, and I have all these great adventures. And it's just, let's just, just really try. Let's just really try. She goes, yeah, I want to try. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that, like, substance abuse gets a bad rap as far as couple therapy goes. Because we should have broken up right then and there. And it let us kept limping along in a doomed relationship for another year. It took Jeff some time to realize that no drug, no plane ticket, could quiet the loud feelings of being lost. I think a lot of times people escape from the reality of what's really going on right in front of them. And it's just kind of like putting wallpaper over a foundational crack. But being lost is more than just a physical location or misplacing an item. It's often inside of you. And if we fight it, we end up making it harder for ourselves instead of thinking that it's part of the process. I'm standing behind the cash register in a chocolate shop in Arequipa, Peru. My gringa friend, Michelle, is standing next to me, hunched over, reorganizing the cookies that haven't been sold that afternoon. I have a cappuccino cup filled with hot chocolate hidden behind the counter. I've been slowly sipping it throughout the day. This recipe is killer. I would trade four women for this chocolate, like the Incas did during their empire. The shop is on the second floor of a building, and we hear pairs of footsteps walk up the long staircase. Two backpacker dudes walk in, exhale, and look around the shop that I've been working in this past month. My mornings were spent making massive batches of brownies, cookies, and cakes. The other bakers and I, lovely ladies from around the world, had creative freedom to make whatever we pleased. Well, within reason. It was a baker's delight. But I woke up every day with a different hunger. Baking started to feel constraining. It was taking up too much time away from what I really wanted to be working on, my podcast. Since that rainy day in Portland, I had been diligently learning how to make a podcast. How to ask good questions, how to not sit too close, how to make people feel comfortable when being interviewed. This was wild. I'd never done anything like this before. I had no radio or writing experience or interviewing expertise. I was just waltzing up to people and asking if they wanted to record their stories for me on a broken iPad that I had shoved too hard into my backpack. I didn't know what I was doing. But I started sniffing out stories like a dog on the hunt for a rare rabbit. I would eavesdrop on people talking in hostels, pay attention to historical tidbits my couch surfers would allude to, and ask other volunteers why they were so far from home. I found other people's stories fascinating. What was numb to them was interesting to me, and I wanted to capture that. I wanted to give people the feeling that their story was important. I was cracking into the world of storytelling like a coconut and found the inner meat to be satisfying my hunger. Over five months of snaking through Latin America, I was starting to see a piece of me I had never noticed before. These audio files became my most prized possession. Their importance took up more space than all the other items in my backpack. But along the way, I had broken up with my boyfriend, shipped all my belongings back to New York, and was wandering through Latin America without a real plan. 
My only goal was to end my trip at this chocolate shop. I had no idea what I would be doing after that. Crossing each border felt wobbly, but I trusted my inner compass, believing that it wouldn't lead me astray. Because what kept me tethered to the ground was my podcast. It was like holding onto a railing as I hiked up a steep mountain of dread and anxiety. But to be clear, discovering this medium wasn't this hallelujah, blinding light of euphoria like I found my path kind of a moment, but more like the hum of a lightning bug, reminding me that there was light and to follow it out of the darkness. Between the long bus rides and monotonous volunteer tasks, I did have the time to process what I was going through and started experimenting with what I wanted my life to look like. It was like wiping a camera lens to get more clarity. Because once I arrived at the chocolate shop, my shaky feelings didn't dry up in the arid Peruvian temperate. My anxieties about my direction followed me through the jungles and deserts and sand dunes of Latin America. Sometimes they whispered close into my ear while crossing a border, or would scream at me as I tried to sleep soundly in a local's apartment. No matter how many miles I put between me and my home, those fears followed me. And as I crossed off one day after another, I didn't know what I was going to do at the end of this. I didn't want to bake anymore, and I had tried social work. Maybe I'll stay in Latin America? Move to Brooklyn? All I knew was that this podcast wasn't going to leave me alone. So as I dried a rack of espresso cups with a soft towel behind the counter, I watched these two dudes walk around the space. In the back of the shop was a wide variety of locally brewed beers on tap. I had basically found Portland in Peru. We're going to order a beer and chocolate cake. What a better combination, one of them said. I really liked their energy. I learned that their names were Brian and Jason. We chatted for a bit, and based on how they said the word about, I knew they were Americans. One of them was planning on moving to Brooklyn, which was uh, interesting, very interesting. They'd been traveling all throughout Peru, and based on their banter, they had the dynamic of an old married couple. People who knew each other so well, they know exactly when to contradict and tease for comedic effect. So uh, how long are you guys here for? I asked. Oh, well, we leave today, and we trailed off on other things. But before they left, I said, well, give me your contact. I'd love to get together in Brooklyn, and maybe I can interview you for my podcast when we all get back. And a year and some change later, I did interview them for this podcast. They're on the Worried episode. And after moving to Brooklyn, this podcast became my North Star. After years of wrong turns and misdirections, this path never hindered me. No potholes or major detours, no closed lanes. There are days where I've had to navigate in the dark, but the sun has always greeted me on the other side. You are listening to the product of my lostness, my search for direction. Unfortunately, the universe was kind and kept pointing my compass north. I still don't know exactly what's going on, but I'm loving the road I'm taking. Travel invites you to lose yourself because sometimes you have to get lost in order to find your way.
and you often need to do that on your own. In our next episode, we're trekking alone. We will talk to travelers who have ventured off solo and why they chose to travel by themselves. Will we dive off the deep end into our own loneliness or find a new sense of freedom? That's next time on Strangers Abroad.